I mean, ultimately it's about, I think it kind of leads to engagement and having that sense of purpose and what you're doing. You know, when you're walking the floor, making the connections, when you're speaking the language of the business, you know, you do, as you said, you start to develop that trust with the people that are around you and, and you can help drive the business from that perspective. Yeah. We've got a great episode lined up for you because I know there's many people in the accounting and the finance world, they want to do more than just analyze the numbers. They, they really want to transition into being a strategic business partner. But in today's world of having to take on personal learning and development, if you've never done it, you know, what are the steps? How can you kind of make that transition? And today's guest, Bryce Ledger, has lived this firsthand. And he's here to show us and teach us a little bit more about how to become a strategic business partner. Bryce, thanks for, uh, for thanks for coming, coming today. Absolutely, Tony. Thanks for having me on. This is something that uh, hits pretty close to home and I've been through it here now going on probably about a decade worth of work. So absolutely. Thanks for having me. When we thought of this topic, well, when, when you brought this topic up, what does that actually mean to you being a strategic business partner? So I, th I think that finance for many years, and I think it's probably shifted over the past couple of decades anyways, you see CFOs taking on president or CEO roles. Um, knowing the financials of the business really helps you to make, I, I believe, much better decisions when it comes to operations. And I had come out of operations, and that's, that's really kind of where this hit. And after through a couple of job moves, uh, it was said to me, you know, they're looking for a strategic business partner. And I said, man, if there's anything that hits more close to home, that that's, that's the line. And that's somewhere that I want to be because having finance uh, as you know, at the table during big decisions really helps to make, I think, better decisions uh, going forward. So for me, being a strategic business partner really means instead of the old way of finance and accounting being, you know, the, the counters of what happened uh, to get them more on the leading edge of these things really helps to kind of move the business forward. You get that tie to the P&L, you're watching your balance sheet, and then everybody kind of gets on that same page as far as what actions are, are happening and the whys behind it. You know, the first thing that I always say, and this is for people that work for me or have worked for me in the past, is in manufacturing, uh, maybe even in warehousing and things like that too. Get out on the floor. That's, I think, the number one thing that you can do. And while, yes, you can take that technically as like get out on the floor, you know, stand on the line and, and run parts if they'll allow you. But the other part is, you know, get out on the floor and, and uh, look at what projects are out there, what the business stands for, where the business is going. It's really that, that boots on the floor mentality, I think, that will help get you recognized as a strategic business partner. Now, I haven't worked for very many places that didn't have a, that, that didn't hold finance in a high regard. But, uh, you know, if, if there's places out there like that, and someone is struggling to maybe make a move from finance into operations, or at least take a step and get that seat at the table during the discussions, you know, getting out on the floor is one of those things. And that's just a, a broad statement, I would say, as far as getting involved 
knowing the processes. You know, if it's if it's programming, put yourself next to a programmer if they'll have you and, and learn the language, really. I think that's interesting. So when you are walking the floor, what you're really saying is really understand the labor and the steps and the processes so you can start to see like activity as it relates to the balance sheet. In other words, if you're just looking at the balance sheet or just looking at financials, you know, you may not really understand the impact, right? So when you walk the floor, it's almost like the financials can come alive a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times from an FP&A perspective, as you're putting together budgets or whatever plan, whatever your cycles are, you know, and you're, you can get so focused and ingrained on the numbers and lose sight of the fact that there's, there's physical assets out there that, that are behind this analysis that are behind that budget. And, you know, if you have a, a department head that comes to you and says, Hey, we need to, you know, make, make whatever move. We need to add some capital over here because we're a little bit restricted on capacity. If you've put your feet down and you recognize what that piece of equipment is and you know kind of where it's going to go and kind of what it's doing, then you can help to frame, you know, what, what that real impact is going to be. A lot of the times, you know, things that I get involved in are really those upfront capital conversations, right? You're going to buy X piece of equipment. What does that do to our labor? Uh, you know, what does that do to our throughput? You know, if it's just uh, an OEE improvement, what does that do to our total output? Uh, all those different things. And, and the more you get involved, and honestly, even in manufacturing, I think that there's a lot of places that would embrace this. Uh, I actually do mean literally, too, if they'll have you and they'll allow you and the safety protocols allow for it, get out there and run parts and, and stand next to the people that do it every day. Because a lot of times, you know, some of the greatest ideas will come from those people that are on the front line. When they are looking at a capital request and you could, in your own mind, visualize why it's needed because you've walked the floor, it might help help you help the operations manager or whoever it is that's requesting the equipment, help them put together a business case or um, add some additional pieces of information to the ROI or build that ROI to help them win that project or win that win that asset, which makes you a big fan or now you've got fans, you know, uh, now you are that business partner because they're right. You've become their business partner, right? You've just helped them get a big win. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of those things, you know, it's it's a place that I find myself in, uh, semi-frequently, but it, it is They're They're coming and saying, Hey, I believe that we need, we need to do this, whether it is capital, whether it's a change in manpower, whether it's change in locations, delivery, warehousing, whatever it is, does this even, does this have a return on it? You know, am I even thinking, you know, it'd be great to have, but how am I going to pitch this so that we have a good return? You know, what's, is there a better way to look at it? And then you really do start making those, those contacts and those ties. And you really do start becoming that partner that they look to or that the business looks to as they're trying to expand, grow downsize even what's the right way to to remove some of some of the costs so that you can right size there you go right size i think that's the friendlier way of of saying reduction now you had mentioned that 
you need to learn to kind of speak the language. And you just talked about kind of binging the tie. This this is that second, I know a second point you wanted to bring up. What, what does that mean exactly? Speak the language or, or be the tie? For many different parts of, well, I'll just go, you have finance, engineering, operations. And I'm going to say that everybody kind of has their own language, right? And And there is some crossover. There's some things that everybody kind of generally understands. But if you're working towards being a strategic business partner, you want to speak the language of the business. And so that that really takes digging in and finding out what the drivers are of the business. And so when I say speak the language, you know, if, uh, I'm going to go manufacturing because that's in my wheelhouse. But if you're in automotive manufacturing and, and maybe you're tier one, tier two, whatever it is, find out what drives those businesses and who those people are. And speaking the language and being that tie, you want to speak the language of operations. You want to speak the language of the business, but then you want to be that tie that ties that language back to finance, right? Because there's a lot of things that we could probably talk about right now. And people would look at you with a, a glazed over sort of, hey, this is in the balance sheet. We're going to talk about the P&L. I need a CER for a capital request and all down the lines and all the different things that we might say and throw out there. And they go, uh-huh, yeah, what is this guy talking about? You know, and so, and it would go back the other way. You know, I've, I've interacted with engineers too, and they're talking about machining and doing all these different things. And I kind of go, well, for me, I, I understand it because I, I spent some time machining. But, you know, a lot of people, you just have this disconnect in languages, right? In finance, we'll be talking balance sheet, P&L, you know, the FP&A function. And then in your actual business, your core business, they might be speaking a different language. And so really you want to be that tie that understands and can go be the go between of, you know, it goes back to the first one too. And kind of some of the things that we've been talking about is, is if, if there's something that the business really needs and wants, if you understand because you've walked the floor, you've been engaged with the people, you start to speak their language and understand what they're talking about so that you can tie it back to the financial performance of the company. I would imagine, too, if you're taking the time to speak their language and not speaking over their head or beginning to use some of their phraseology back to them, probably very subtly you are looking more and more like someone they can trust, someone that they like, that you're approachable. And, you know, a like having a likability factor will definitely help. Yes, you're walking the floor and doing those things, but then when you couple that with you know, you're, you're kind of stylistically, now you're building relationships and then they're also more likely to have you, you know, kind of be that uh, partner that honestly that finance and accounting wants to be because it just has more value and it helps you become more passionate about your work when you're actually tied to making good decisions and seeing the company be profitable. You know, it's something you can be proud about. And frankly, it's a, uh, it's a point that you can make on your resume because if you're not building your, your skills, you're not building your accomplishments, then you're just kind of uh, not getting the most out of your time at work and work is not getting enough out of you. I mean, ultimately it's about, I think it kind of leads to engagement and having that sense of purpose and what you're doing. You know, when you're walking the floor, making the connections, when you're speaking the language of the business, you know, you do, as you said, you start to develop that trust with the people that are around you and, and you can help drive the business from that perspective. Yeah. So let's say there's a, 
a project or there's something happening, you know, that, that you see within the organization and the organization hasn't typically used a strategic business partner, how do you, um, you know, how do you go about trying to insert yourself into this process? I think this was your third point, but how does kind of practically speaking, how do you raise your hand and, and take the project, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think it can be difficult to make that change, make that break in moment, right? And a lot of times, you know, you only have so many opportunities maybe during the month, right? So you wrap up month end, you go into the presentations, you start presenting the financials and you're there with the leadership team and you're, you've, you've been set at the table and they start talking about projects or new programs or launches or whatever it is. Um, it just literally raise your hand. I'd like to know more about that. Is that something I can be involved in? Uh, you know, even if you're the fly on the wall at the meeting, just so you can develop an understanding that also helps to build those ties within the company. And you basically are saying, Hey, we may not have been at the forefront of any of these projects from a financial, you know, perspective, but I would like to be involved. Right. So we're going to expand, you know, the manufacturing operations. We're going to expand our sales footprint, you know, and so as the sales teams meeting and they're dividing up territories and things like that, you can get involved and you can say, this is how we're going to break it up. We're going to hire more people or we're going <laughs> to, my new favorite phrase, right? Right size to, to divide up these, uh, these different, uh, you know, areas geographically from a sales perspective, say, Hey, I want to be a part of that because then you can start talking sales, right? And you can start talking about, you know, what does that mean for us from a profitability standpoint? Has anybody thought about this? But yeah, really like raise your hand when you're in the meetings, take the project uh, and make the time to, to be a contributor. One of the downsides I've heard when people try to insert themselves into these processes, like here's an operational guy and finance is trying to come in. They look at finance as an auditor, they think finance is there to prevent them from doing what they want. And I think that's in some cases why people have not, or, or some organizations haven't had that strategic business partner because they feel that, you know, finance is there to get in the way. So I think it's also very important to just say up front, look, I'm not an auditor. I am not here to review your case and report back and show that it's you know, a bad idea. I'm actually here to support you, to help you. Yeah. And finance is one of those functions that, uh, we're, we're a cost, right? And so we, we really are, and should focus on the fact that we're a support function for the business. And while I talk about being a strategic business partner, being upfront, being on that leading edge of projects and things like that, we still do need to recognize that we're a support function and, and maybe put that out there exactly like what you said. I'm not here to play you know, mom or dad to this project or to this company. I'm here to be the partner. I'm here to be alongside of you. If there are questions, yeah, I'm not reporting back. I want, I want the best for the company as much as you do. Moving into, you know, strategic business partner will elevate your importance in the company. And frankly, I think it leads to promotions. I think it leads to greater opportunities within an organization. So I really appreciate you kind of, kind of walking us through 
some very practical steps on how to become a strategic business partner. Well, why don't we jump into our second uh, topic, this talent spectrum. You made some really interesting comments to me. You know, we're both involved with with hiring and, you know, evaluating people. Um, I'd love to get, get your take on this uh, phrase you kind of came up with, the talent spectrum. What are we talking about here? So within the talent spectrum, you know, it's it's just like any other spectrum, right? You have different people with different desires and, and really different personalities. Well, you have, you have different people, right? <laughs> different motivations, different and mindsets. Yeah, absolutely. Different histories that have, that have lot or brought them to where they are today. And one of the, one of the big things that I, I learned this a while ago and it kind of, it, it smacked me in the face. You know, I'm a, I'm a driven guy, right? And so I wanted the next, the next step. What do I do next? What am I going? What's the next project? What's the next anything, right? Looking to the future, very future focused, uh, understand that the present will take care of itself as long as I'm doing the things that I need to do, but also have that eye to the future. And I was, I'm a hunter. And so I was up at uh, camp one year and I'm, I'm putting all this out there. I don't understand. I can't, I can't believe that people don't want it. You know, why would you not want to go for that next thing? And one of the guys, and I love the group of guys that I go hunting with because, you know, one of them's retired. He owned a bunch of, a bunch of gyms. Uh, another guy, he came out of operations and is retired. You have myself who is through finance. We have electrician, millwright, uh, a small business owner, like these different people from different areas. And the one guy, he looked at me, he's a millwright, and he goes, some people don't want it. Go, <laughs> Duh. No. <laughs> well, why didn't I think of that? And it I is said, hard to think outside how? of your own perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and what he said to me was, was very true. He goes, you have some people out there that really are, are – what they want is to go in, do their job, perform the tasks – you know, think about fishing all day. And then when they go home, they want to go fishing, you know? And I go, man, you couldn't put it more plain to me. I, okay, I did. And that one hit me pretty hard because, you know, being a motivated guy, it really took someone to say, hey, look, not everybody wants that. Not everybody's got that drive. Not everybody's got that desire. And it really started, started me thinking it's not only, you know, I mean, it's probably about five years ago that I thought about this, but and when I got into a leadership position, you have, you have role players, right? Or position players, right? And that's what I'd call them. I'm not going to say people that don't want to take that next step up into a leadership role, but there's people that genuinely love what they do and they don't want anything else. They want to know that A, their job is secure, that they know what they're doing when they come in in the morning. And then when they, you know, hang up their hat at the end of the day, that they can go home, Right and not have to be, I'm going to say, burdened with uh, outside working hours uh, related activity, right? Yeah, well, it's a higher, look, leadership is a higher stress position. And you do tend to internalize and, you know, take those problems, you know, home with you, right? Because you're you're focused on, on growing the business. Yeah, and I think, you know, you always have to walk that line, right? It's It's been tough to me because, you know, I came out of tier one automotive and it was, it's a, that's a very high demand, high stress, uh, environment and that you can't, you can go too far. Right. And everybody always talks about balance and things like that. I don't know that there is 
balance. There's just your life and how you choose to manage it. But, you know, one of those things, you're absolutely right. When you do get into a, a leadership role, uh, sometimes those things do flow over and you always have to kind of walk that line and, and balance it out a little bit. But there, when I talk about role players, you have people that they don't want it. And I had to come to the understanding that that's fine. How can I still challenge and prove, you know, present challenges to this employee so that they're engaged, they feel fulfilled, uh, but they're also, they're maybe progressing a little bit, but still within their role that they want to be in. Well, that almost sounds like another uh, podcast episode, how to motivate a role player. <laughs> you opened your, you know, look what happened. Look what you just did there to yourself. I know. Yeah. Get me in on that one, but bring somebody else too, because uh, I need some, everybody needs more. Ideas. We all need tips on that one. Yeah. Listen, we all pull our hair out with that. Well, I think, so once you, once that idea kind of dawned on you, did it become a little bit easier to spot these role players when you were interviewing versus a high potential. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're kind of talking about the second point here really is, is high potentials and how do you measure those different things? And even in the high potential, say that you have different strata, right? So you have, you're probably familiar with it. Maybe not everybody, but just like a, a nine box model, right? Where you kind of mark. Explain for people who don't know what the nine box model is. It's a, it's a tool that's used in talent assessment. Just kind of break it down. Yeah, so just think of like uh, if you were looking at a Rubik's Cube at the side, right? It's three rows of three, so nine nine separate boxes. And at the bottom, you kind of have your low potential, low performance. Or if you put it on an XY axis, you have performance and potential, right? And so you have low performance, low potential. They're kind of sitting in that that bottom of the nine box, and it's, you know, either help them to improve that's that's step one one a right get the get them to want it right if you can help motivate them to get them out of that 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 spot but then you move through the nine different boxes and ultimately you get up to the top and what would be the top right as i've seen it presented anyway which would be high performance and high potential and there's just different sections throughout it as you're progressing people through the nine box works really well if you have uh, larger groups of people, right? It's not something that I used specifically as far as writing, writing names down when I was in operations. Cause I had 35. It's tough people. with a smaller organization. That's something that you'll find in a larger organization because there's more opportunities to move them around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But this was something that I kept in my back pocket and would just kind of rationalize to myself in operations. Like, you know, this, this person wants it. How can I challenge them? Where do they fit into that, that nine box? And this person needs some help, some motivation. Uh, some of them daily, <laughs> other ones, you just had to check in every once in a while. And they were, they were doing, well, and to things. your point, if they're in that bottom three box, then you're just trying to improve that bottom rung as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and move people up, right. And not move them into a different roll into a different area, whatever it is, move them up, you know, on their own. And it's, it's one of those things, I think it's Dan Peterson that said it, it. I heard it in my MBA program from one of my favorite professors, but she said and quoted him, what, what gets measured and rewarded gets done. 
right? And we've always heard about the intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards. And I worked in a union place. And so it's not like I could say, hey, do well, I'm going to pay you more. No, it's contract. So how do you motivate someone at that point? And really, you had to start digging into how am I going to measure your performance? How can I reward you? Uh, as you as you're moving through this nine box model of performance, how can how can I motivate you even if I don't have anything external that I can do? What what's your driver? What drives you? Is it me saying, "Hey, great job," you know, over the past hour? Is it me saying, "Hey, last month you knocked it out of the park," right? Because it just makes you feel good and engaged. Or do I need to take a different step and have like uh, nominate for a you know, a, a reward program, you know, a recognition program and things like that. So it, it can be, it can be difficult, but it's, it's one of my favorite, favorite quotes, especially as we're doing goal setting and things like that. What gets measured and rewarded gets done. What did you mean by five-year movers? What is that exactly in this, in this talent spectrum? Yeah. So when I was, so I started off uh, in the trades and, you know, my wife had just moved back to Michigan from California and she took a job as a nanny for this couple. And so we got close because, you know, they, they had a the little family and they'd invite us over for dinner sometimes. And I was sitting playing pool uh, with the dad and he was talking about his experience and he was in finance at the time. He was the CFO for a manufacturer that was local. And he, he had moved from the East Coast to Mexico, up into Michigan, over to Chicago, and now he's back on the East Coast. But this is one thing that he kind of put out. He goes, I won't, I won't stay at a position for five years. And I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about, man? People work for the same company their entire life. He goes, yeah, I get that. But he goes, and he laid it out. So five-year movers, it's in this you know, high-potential uh, box right? And it's really about positioning people. When you first take, and it's five years, right? Your first year, I believe, I believe that you learn more about the position, the business, all of those things than what you will the rest of your time in that position, right? So you spend that first year and you're basically keeping your head above water. You're learning the business, you're learning the people and all those different things. And, and year two, uh, once you start to know the people, you know the business, you know your role, things are things are starting to move. It's a little bit more fluid in your position. And really at the end of year three, and in finance, I don't know that we think about it a lot, but it's I call it the innovation stage. So at the end of year two and in through year three, you start to look at your own performance and you start to look at your own position, what you're doing, and find a way to innovate, Right. And so gaining efficiencies, uh, nailing the process, and all those different things. So you're three years into this, you're going into year four, and what you've really discovered now is I know the know my role, I know the people in the business, uh, I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing, how do I make it better? And then you really start into year four, maybe four and a half through five, training your replacement. Because it was said to me a long time ago, and I won't ever forget it. You know, I was in automotive, and I'd gone through a bunch of training, and I was asking, what's next? And my boss, he looked at me, he goes, you're too valuable doing what you're doing for me to move you. And I go, 
man, what a gut punch, right? Someone that's motivated, that wants it to say something like that. And I started going back to night school. I had to do it myself. So I started all over again in school and, and ultimately went through bachelor's degree and MBA and landed in, in finance where I'm at now. And that's one of those things when you're in year four and year five, it's really tough to move on to your next challenge or whatever you want it to be. If you don't have someone to fill, right? Someone to backfill. And, correct. And that's really, that. yeah. Yeah. If you don't have some, if you're not training your replacement, it's really tough for you to, to take advantage of that next opportunity within the same company. And that's what I mean by those five, five year movers, right? You have, you have a high potential person uh, that does well, super engaged. You learn in the first year, year two, you know, the people, your role, you know, the business, then you start to innovate, you gain efficiencies. Uh, you start putting pen to paper, even on, on some of maybe the repetitive things. And then you start training your back though, because if you are one of those high potentials and you do want to move, you have to make sure, well, I think it's an obligation. Any of us that have learned, we have the obligation to teach, I think, but you start training your replacement so that you have the opportunity. You know, and it, like if you're in the middle of that nine box and you're leading someone and you want to bring them up anyway, it's a great learning opportunity for that next person as well. When you're hiring and you notice someone has changed jobs every two and a half, three years, they're labeled a job hopper and people don't want to hire them typically. And you've really shown kind of behind the curtains why people who are changing jobs that frequently are not really highly considered because they have left the organization before they had a chance to d go through this learning and maturation and innovation phase. They're, they're leaving at the time they're supposed to be making the greatest impact. So companies are investing time, money, effort into these people. And then before it can be paid off, they leave. Finding a bad job, landing in a bad job happens to people. So it's, it's okay if you have, if you do it, if you do have to leave, but if it's a repetitive thing on your resume, it's a big red flag. And I think you've really shown, you know, why that is, um, great point, you know, and I think if you're going to kind of follow that mantra of I'm going to be a five-year mover, it's important for you to sit down with your, with your management and really let them know that. You know, you do have plans. You know, you really do want to advance. And kind of going back to your earlier statement about raising your hand, you kind of have to raise your hand internally too and say, you know, this is kind of what I'd, I'd like to do. You know, see if they can see if they can support your ambition. Yeah, many many times I've seen people that it, that have left because they didn't see that future opportunity. But then you get into the meeting and you're like, well, why? Why did you want to leave, or why did this person leave? You know the the, oh, the exit interview, post mortem. I guess. Yeah, the, the exit interview. Yeah, and well, I really wanted to do this, right? And so you go back and you look at the reviews, and you're like, oh, "What? Say something. Speak up. You know, let, let someone know because that's it. Really does put you on a list. So I mean, if you're in a manager role and you're you know you're making your moves through there, to people that aren't in a leadership role that want it. Uh, yeah, let's take a step back, raise your hand. And, and you have to say like, Hey, these are my goals. These are my motivations. This is what I'm really looking for. Me as a manager. I love to hear it. I love to hear it. Absolutely. For me, one of those things, you know, as I look, 
longer into my career. I, I want to go back and teach, you know, and this, this format, this opportunity really represents that is that, you know, as we go through our careers, we learn so much, you know, I'm talking about five-year movers and all these different things. I, I would love to go back and teach. And I love this opportunity and this platform to get these ideas out there. And some of the things that I've heard and gone through, because, you know, maybe not everybody has that experience. Maybe not everybody has that opportunity. But, you know, as we share more of these ideas across whatever platform that is, we really get people thinking and motivated and, and thinking outside of the box that that can be finance, that can be engineering operations, whatever it is. Well, you did a great job laying everything out, and I'm so glad you could be with us today, Bryce. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tony. <laughs>